0: Good afternoon. We are live. Welcome to the council. I'm Charlie Pichello, your host, and we've got a great show today. Uh, I'm so excited to introduce my guest here shortly. Uh, I just want to do a quick shout out announcement to our uh, sponsor, Remax Alliance. Remax Alliance, uh, if you want to buy or sell a home in Colorado, they are the people to go to. Go to www.homesincolorado.com. That's homesincolorado.com. Uh, if you're looking to buy, if you're looking to sell, if you want to, if you're trying to find your dream home, these are the people that will take care of you. I know them personally. They're amazing people. They're the number one uh, real estate agent in the co- in the state, and oh, I, I think in the country too. But in the state, and uh, please go and check them out at www.homesincolorado.com. That's homesincolorado.com. I also want to make a quick announcement uh, for a friend of mine. She is doing a White House prayer for the nation. Uh, This is tomorrow in Washington, D.C. It's the 20th annual White House prayer for our nation. It's going to be at President's Park in Washington, D.C. They're going to be praying for our president and his family They're going to be praying for the government leaders, for our nation, for our military, for the immigrant families, and for law enforcement officers. They're going to be praying for world peace. Uh, The event is going to be hosted by the Reverend Terry Lee with interfaith guest Reverend Dr. Sarah Larson. And entertainment is going to be held on uh, Saturday, May 26th. This is uh, from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. On the Ellipse of the White House Lawn, uh, the Northwest Quadrant. And so if you want to learn more about that, please go to their website, which is www.whitehouseprayer.org. Again, that's whitehouseprayer.org. And uh, it's uh, to share the energy of praying for peace and for all of our uh, you know, people in our government that uh, we've got to be able to support. And it's easy. You know, to love your neighbor, I mean, that's kind of the golden rule of all religions. And sometimes that's not always the easiest thing to do. So no matter what your politics, uh, no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, we can pray for our president, we can pay for all these of officials, and we can pray for all the people in our, in our country with compassion and wisdom and wish them well for everyone, wish them blessings. So if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, prayer for our nation, please attend. It's going to be an amazing event. Today, we are going to be focusing on talking about our first responders. You know, our firefighters, our police officers and paramedics. This show is dedicated to them. And, you know, most of us can still remember what happened on September 11th, 2001. And it was a day when the Twin Towers were hit and life in America changed dramatically. Firefighters uh, located in the Twin Towers hugged each other saying, you know, I love you, brother. I may not see you again. And then they would run up that stairwell trying to save the tens of thousands of people that were trapped in those buildings. There's one particular story that really moved me about people who were trapped in Tower One, um, in an elevator in Tower One. And it had actually fallen 70 stories. And what stopped it was uh, the emergency brake system. That's what kept it from colliding on the ground. But the people were living in terror. They were screaming because they were still trapped. The elevator pit was right below. The right, the right below them was was on fire. The jet fuel had gone to the bottom there and was on fire, and they were right above it, and it was cooking them. The firefighters they ran up to help out. You know they had the they had the training, they had the knowledge, they had the tools, they had the equipment, they had the courage to save those people's lives. And those firefighters and those police officers and those EMTs who ran into those buildings at the risk of their own lives to save others were nothing less than, nothing short of being American heroes. Now, months later, when they were recovering the bodies from the uh, the attack site, uh, the body of a firefighter was found holding on to the jaws of life, trying to rescue those people off the elevator. 343 New York firefighters died in 9-11. 37 Port Authority police officers died. It was the largest loss of life for a law enforcement agency in the history of this country. And 23 New York City police officers died as well. On that day, we were visited by the worst of humanity. And we met the worst of humanity with the best of humanity. And people went there for people they didn't even know, to go save them. Life was what was important. Not your creed, not your background, not your religion, not your politics. None of that was important. Life was important. And so there's a, there's a higher law that motivates these people. A law that transcends any of those other things that tends to divide us. Michael Bloomberg said this afterwards, he's like, On September 11th, 2001, thousands of first responders heroically rushed to the scene and saved tens of thousands of lives. More than 400 of those first responders did not make it out alive. In rushing into those burning buildings, not one of them asked, what God do you pray to? What beliefs do you hold? And I would add, what politics do you have? See, it doesn't matter. And it takes a special character, a special quality of people who are willing. These are angels. These are, these are earth angels, people who, who are called to this duty, firefighters, police officers, and emergency medical service personnel. They are on the front lines of all of our domestic calamities, from natural disasters to evacuations to mass shootings. And we've had a lot of those. The first ones we call and look to, to for help are these courageous and dedicated men and women. Now, one of the problems that can not happen in, this, in, this, in these professions is that they can't experience, some of them can't experience PTSD. Because this trauma is constant. It is, it is every day. And many are told just to suck it up, get over it, man up. And there's a guy named Anthony Guernay. He's an EMT from New York City and he's given us outstanding TED Talk presentation just recently and about his experience of working on the job for his whole life. You got to go to the YouTube and watch it. When on your free time, check it out. You will understand the life of an EMT much more personally when you do. One of the things I learned is that first responders you really are not allowed to have any emotion. Whether they're paramedics, EMTs, police or firefighters, They see people at their worst. And then they have to get back out there. They have to suck it up. They have to man up. They have to get over it. But the problem is that sometimes this really makes matters worse. Because these professions, they see trauma and tragedy on a day-to-day basis. The things that most of us would cringe and run from. And that's... Over time, the accumulation of all these things, that can lead to some of them experiencing post-traumatic stress. Now, most police officers, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs want to make a difference. That's why these people join these services. They want to make a difference. They, they want to save people's lives. They want to protect them. They want to keep them safe. They want to get them out of danger. It's a noble calling. But the little things can be so devastating. I mean, they see tragedies every single day. And just to give you a a, a couple examples, imagine a two-month-old baby having cardiac arrest. And you know that no matter what you do, there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it. Or how about a murder scene when when you see body parts all over the floor And seeing that day in and day out. Or trying to resuscitate an old man from a heart attack. And then you look up and you see on the mantle when he was 40 years younger and he just got married. And you see the spouse standing over you, crying in shock as you watch her face change, knowing that her life has completely changed forever after the death of her husband. Think about all the stabbings, all the shootings the mass deaths of these innocent children, the mangled vehicles, the charred remains of bodies. These are the images that these first responders have to deal with. And it's a constant tragedy every single day. Now these professions, we don't really know all about their successes. Their successes are hidden. We don't hear about the good things that they do, all their good deeds, the lives that they've saved. We don't hear about them saving the life of a child or rescuing uh, somebody out from a fire. Or uh, we don't hear about, uh, you know, uh, them resuscitating a, a human being. What we mostly hear about are their failures. And those failures are very often public and scrutinized. So it's very easy to get burnt out in these professions. They suffer, many of them, not all of them, but many of them suffer alone from the memories, from the images, from the sounds of the things that they've seen and heard. And a lot of times they can suffer from crippling depression. They're, they can't even get out of bed for a week. And very drinking is very common as a way to anesthetize, to drown out some of these feelings that they're having, where they become workaholics, taking multiple shifts just to drown out the pain, to block it out, to keep going. You know, man it up, suck it up. And for many, it's a facade. Because they're told to suck it up, but they're quietly suffering inside. And people in these professions, some are are hurting, you know, and they're, they're suffering and they're in pain. Because when you don't know what to deal with the pain... You drown it out, you medicate, you anesthetize, you drink, and then you can reach a point of despair and hopelessness and the only idea after that is to just end it all. We've got to change the dialogue here. And today on the council, that's what we're going to do. We're going to start changing the dialogue to be able to shift it into a whole new paradigm A whole new understanding of the human condition and the people who worked in these professions and what our firefighters, police officers, EMTs, paramedics are going through. We gotta tell them that it's okay to not be okay. That it's okay to talk about your feelings. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel emotions. But what's not okay is to pretend you are okay. When you're inside, you're about to break. So today on the council, we have uh, an amazing, amazing person here. We are going to dive into the world of the first responders, the police officers, the medics, the the, uh, firefighters, those who run towards danger when the rest of us are running away from it. My very special guest is Dr. John Becknell. Dr. Becknell helps first responders and emergency service personnel, organizations, and leaders thrive well. He is an international consultant and has been involved with emergency services for more than 40 years and worked in a variety of settings, including the United States, the Middle East, and Central America. Dr. Becknell's ongoing work and research seeks to help those working in law enforcement, the fire service, and EMS find depth, meaning, satisfaction, and richness in their lives. He is the former editor in chief of the Journal of Emergency Medical Services and author of two books and numerous articles. Dr. Becknell, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Charlie. Is there a, can you tell the audience just a little bit uh, more about your background and how you came into the work, John? So I started out uh, early on as a young
1: uh, person in the seventies and, uh, working in emergency services, became a paramedic and a flight medic and worked in a variety of settings. As you mentioned, I did that full time for 18 years and, um, but was always concerned about, um, uh really the uh social psychological spiritual kind of implications of doing that kind of work and went on to um work in um trying to help uh first responder organizations create cultures and environments where people do well and so today um i'm a consultant Uh, that works with uh, first responder uh, organizations all across the country, uh, primarily in the area of culture creation, employee engagement, leadership development. But I'm also working on with a number of other uh, first responders, leaders, uh, chaplains, psychologists across the country. And we're really working on trying to answer this question of is it possible to be a first responder long term Mm-hmm. have a career of it and while you're in the midst of it live well have a deep full rich satisfying life and also come to retirement uh, without being burnt out, without being cynical and and um and uh, jaded about life and to live well so that's the work today it's an ongoing project uh, many people out there involved in it but that's a little bit of the background
0: Well, that's amazing, and it's, you know, what do you find, what is so unique about first responders that makes them stand out from everybody else?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know... um... We're these social animals that live in communities, and as far as we can kind of go back in, in history and and learn, uh, there's always been a very small subset of people within communities who are willing to take on sort of the the protection, safety, rescue of of the community. And uh, today, we know that this is about uh, probably less than two percent of society. And, uh, but these people do something different. What's really unique about first responders, and it's an ongoing um, study, is to say what makes people who – what what's different about people who will run toward danger for the benefit of the group while everyone else is fleeing? Mm-hmm. You know, recently in the mass shooting uh, in Las Vegas, uh, there was a really interesting um, – Uh, kind of observation there is that when uh, the shooter started shooting into this crowd at the music festival, uh, there were a lot of off-duty first responders, police officers, firefighters, medics who were there. And it's really interesting. As the crowd realized they were being fired on and and started to flee, um, these first responders, though they were off-duty, out of uniform, all just started Moving toward the danger, moving toward protecting people, moving toward so the question we want to ask is what's different about these people? And so what we what we're learning and what we're studying and and recognizing is that people who who do this and especially do it as a career have to change some things about their own psychology and about how they approach things, how they view things, and uh, they really wind up being different. And you mentioned a few of those. Things things in your introduction about how they approach um, emotion, how they approach uh, what we call the limbic part of the brain, the part mm-hmm. of the brain that is really the seat of our emotions. They change some things and they they have to do some, some things that are different. So they are different and um, what is important I think is as we work with them is to really begin to understand how they're different. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think it's very similar to what uh, people in the military are like. You know, they they hear the call to service. They want to serve a call that's bigger than themselves. And they uh, raise their right hand and they they, uh, pledge allegiance and they swear allegiance to protecting the Constitution in the United States. And so it's this... It's this warrior ethos, Uh, you know, it's this warrior ethic that people have that is about protecting and ensuring the survival of the species and the survival of their families and willing to give up their lives for people that they don't know. But there's a there's a calling that you have and you you have a, a discipline about yourself to be able to, you know, to to hear that call. And sometimes when we, but the the hazards of the job sometimes bring us to the point because we see the worst in humanity. We see the worst things that happen in humanity. And so it can make it very difficult for us to be able to process that because we're human beings. We think, we feel, we have emotions. And a lot of times when we bury those emotions, it can be, it can, you know, pollute the system after a while because it accumulates, it builds up. And then all of a sudden there's a, there's a moment where you feel like you're going to break down. So what makes I mean you don't work in clinical psychology John what what talk about your approach to psychology and what inspired your approach
1: yeah so so I'm really interested in um, in the psychology of groups uh, we've got these 60,000 to hundred thousand year old brains that, that have evolved uh, when we were hunter-gatherers and and um, living in tribal societies and and our brains are communally oriented and and that's really, I'm really interested in how we work together now much of of psychology today is focused on the individual and focused on psychopathology and we're learning lots from that, I mean cognitive behavioral psychology um, and uh, humanistic psychology and now even positive psychology all of these are providing insights about the individual but I'm really interested in more how our psychology and how our emotional uh, psychological spiritual makeup is impacted by how we are together and that works really well in understanding and working with first responders because the first responder uh, makes a choice to do a high risk high stress high responsibility job on behalf of society. So there's an intertwining of and a connection, just as the soldier goes on behalf of society. So when you stick somebody in a uniform 24 hours a day out there protecting the community, they are deeply connected to what's going on socially.
0: Hmm. Well, in that social sphere, I mean, because we're connected in community and then it's such an important aspect. It is a social contract that we have. We yeah. engage in something that uh, the society needs and in, in order to protect the the tribe. I mean, this goes back to that tribal understanding of uh, there are the warriors that go out to protect the tribe. And there's a contract that you will go out there and you will protect us and, and make sure that we are kept safe. And in return, we'll provide food, we'll provide you sustenance, we're going to provide you the equipment, and we'll provide you the the, the needing for healing when you return. So that you can become reintegrated back into the community it's a very basic structure, but it's a, it's a social contract that we have and you know it's when people don't recognize that there's a social contract involved, that social contract can be broken. Have you noticed that in your work that where the social contract is seems to be severed i mean what's the what's the feeling of the people that are that you're working with? Um, are they, do they feel like they're a part of the society, or do they feel alienated from the society?
1: Well, inter- interesting, uh, you know, that when first responders, first of all, um, might be a little put off with your introduction.
0: Yeah, well, I figured they would. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so let me tell you why.
0: Because
1: okay. we, you know, society today has kind of a, a two-dimensional or, or, or maybe just a kind of a cardboard cutout view of, of first responders. And they often think of first responders in terms of big events like 9-11 or, or Sandy Hook or the Las Vegas shooting or Katrina or something like that. We think about first responders in terms of big events. We also think about them as sort of we like to talk about them and honor them in terms of uh, and glowing terms of heroic language. And and we we think about them in, in terms of that sort of heroic kind of kind of way or the other sort of two-dimensional way we think of them is this sort of breakdown into into ptsd and psychopathology Mm -hmm. and sort of all of that we kind of have wrong Um, when it comes to the big events uh, many first responders um, uh, really look forward to and hope that they are privileged enough to serve in some big event Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because they train for this. This is what they're all about. This is how they've rearranged uh, their psychology to think differently. And while it may sound funny to the rest of the world, many of them really look forward to the possibility of being able to serve in some big event. And usually around those big events, there's lots of attention, lots of support, lots of media. And for the vast majority of first responders, big events are not the problem. the things the first responders are concerned about are or really stressed about are not usually the big events or those overwhelming events that cause ptsd the um the real numbers of ptsd are actually quite small but that doesn't mean that first responders aren't changed by the work that they do they are they are really changed by it but when when part of my psychological approach to this is to really pay attention to the phenomenon and listen deeply to what first responders say. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're
1: going to listen to a bunch of cops and firefighters and medics, what you're going to hear when you listen deeply to them is not about the big events and not about PTSD and not about all of the accolades about being heroes from society. What we find the first responders are concerned about are these things, this is what really concerns them. They're concerned about the personal performance. Mm-hmm. When when the chips are down or when, um, when the real uh, stuff is happening, can I do well, will I do well? But what they're really bothered by often, what causes them the most stress when you listen to it is operational stuff. What's going on in the department, the workload, Uh, how they're being dispatched out there um, whether um, local communities are trying to cut the number of officers on the street or the number of uh, paramedic units on the street what we call operational performance and workload they're concerned about going home how do i be hyper vigilant all day how do i be a cop in a busy district go on three domestic violence calls deal with other uh, stuff, and then just be able to go home. How do I na- navigate this work-home relationship? We call it uniform changing. How do I, you know, be hypervigilant all day long, ready to protect the community, and then um, go off duty and go pick up my kid from soccer and be be fully available? What we really hear a lot today that they're concerned about is what we call the social political mismatch how on one hand we say heroes 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 and the minute there is something that goes wrong in terms of of a response or how a a citizen or uh is is treated immediately immediately they're used as a lightning run and many first responders especially law enforcement folks feel alienated from society today yeah. feel as if society is doesn't have their back mm-hmm. and the last thing we hear when we listen to them is really about what you mentioned earlier is what we call accumulated misery mm-hmm. it's not a big event it's just that the vast majority take take uh take um a busy paramedic unit in downtown Philadelphia, maybe doing 18 to 20 uh, responses in a 24 hour shift, those, those folks that are working that paramedic unit are just seeing a steady diet of other people's trouble and misery. Yeah. And over time, that just accumulates.
0: Yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, in any kind of. Uh, of work where you're dealing with other people's pain and other people's tragedies and traumas, you, uh, you're, you, you become inundated with all of that stuff, and it can wear the system down to a point where that if you're not doing any kind of self-care or, or, or having ways to be able to, like you said, take off the uniform <laughs> and, you know, di- disengage for a little while and then get back into uh, your life, you know, you have to, you want to be able to live your life. You don't want to be able to carry those things into your families or into your uh, communities and when you're off duty. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that I've been uh, working with recently who've experienced domestic abuse and it's painful, It's painful and for me to see that, to hear about it. Now I can't even imagine to see that on a daily basis. And when they feel alienated, you know, from being able to talk about these things, it seems to me that one of the great things about this approach that you do is that it requires people to listen. To really listen, an emphasis is on their soul. It's an emphasis, you know, in Greek, psyche means soul. And therapeia meant attendant. So a psychotherapist or was an attendant to the soul. And so if we try to listen to the individual in a unique way where we're not fighting against the symptoms that we see, we are rather observing, and we're listening, and we're trying to see what the soul wants to tell us. It's it's not it's going beyond just the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or the reductionist uh, uh, psycho processes that goes on in the brain. We're much more than just um, you know chemicals firing, neurons firing in the brain. we we, we have a heart. We have a soul. It's come, when you're taking it from that perspective, it moves, it moves the, uh, the center of gravity from a different place, from the head to the heart. And that takes uh, a lot of courage because you have to be able to sit there and listen to what they're saying. And as Thomas More in his book called Care of the Soul writes, you take back what has been disowned. You work with what is rather than what you wish were there. And in my work that I do with the people that, I, that I'm, I'm privileged to and honored to work with, uh, I find this pro- approach to be very effective. Do you find it effective, and why do you find it effective when dealing with the crises that you experience uh, or the, 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 the life experiences of, of these first responders?
1: Well, I, um, I think when you shut up and listen deeply, um, to use that wonderful word that the Greeks used to talk about all of psyche soul as you're using it and as the romantic poets used it uh, is this this, um, part of ourselves that uh, is a little bit wary and a little bit coy and when we listen deeply to first responders and we look at what they're doing psychologically here's what we see we see that they unlike the rest of of society, have accepted responsibility for other people's lives, safety, well-being, protection. Uh, They have to to be prepared for that. They have to imagine the worst. They have to be able to suspend their natural, the natural human priority towards self-preservation. They've got to be calm in the middle of stressful situations. They have to override their own emotions Uh, They have to be able to um, be prepared to see, encounter, and perhaps even use violence, which means that they have to be at work constantly vigilant, at a hyper level of vigilance. Um, They have to absorb and carry distressing images, as you've already pointed out, and they have to be really deeply self-reliant and self-confident in extreme situations so in order to do all of that when we listen deeply to to their psychological emotional spiritual makeup we find that doing that to do that requires a counterbalance there has to be something that balances it so if you're going to do that and go to work And then go home and live a good life and be able to be emotionally available to connect with somebody at home it takes a counterbalance to be able to do all of the psychological things that are necessary to to be a first responder and then also to live a good life and that's where the work is and we're learning and and what we're learning is that 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 it's not so mysterious uh, that what that counterbalance is has actually been known for a long time. It's it's just that we've we've sort of forgotten it in in the mad rush of modern society.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what is that counterbalance? Is it, is it the same process that uh, when uh, you know I've had Doctor Ed Dick on here a couple times? That whole warrior idea. I mean, it's uh, this because first responders embody that warrior archetype of, of running into danger of. Of, of of standing up for a higher principle, of living for a higher cause, and there is a whole process that is done about you know, you know tending and healing your wounds and uh, accepting your destiny. And you're this you you signed up for this. This is part of the hazards of the job: the uh, purification and storytelling and being able to uh, share your story in meaningful ways in order to be able to you know allow that to empty out of you, and then to um, be able to. Uh, reintegrate yourself by you know, participating, constructing, doing things to help the society. Is that warrior archetype that is used so effectively in when working with veterans? Uh, is that same kind of a thing applicable and effective when you're working with uh, first responders? And how does it show up? And how do how can people recognize it as well?
1: So it's it's it is very similar to working with that because the the archetypal um, sort of energy is the same if i'm going to go protect society rather in military or rather in civilian uh, law enforcement fire ems uh, i'm i'm having to put aside my own concerns for the the welfare and safety of of the community what we're learning and it may sound a little odd to people when we talk about um, you know, great psychological kind of breakthroughs. What we're learning is by studying the people who live well, who go home, have happy, fulfilled, rich, satisfying lives, what we're learning about studying those people is that one of the characteristics that they display is really a high level of, of what we would call super adult maturity, and this is the counterbalance Mm -hmm. if i'm going to have to draw a curtain between my emotions so that i can so i can uh so i can work with somebody without my own emotions being involved i can bring calm and uh professionalism to a high stress horrible situation Um, The counterbalance to developing all those great skills, which first responders have in spades, the counterbalance to that is really this what we call super adult maturity. Mm -hmm. And what we mean by that, and it it really has uh, some components to that, and those components are, are really working hard with character. And what we mean by working with character is making sure with inside the individual there's a match between what you say your values are and how you live every day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how we work with first responders with with that whole character issue is to say, everybody has a struggle. None of us are perfect insight. All of us have weaknesses and flaws. Mm -hmm. You just have to get in the game and be working on it because the work work that first responders do often leaves them with a a vague and nonspecific sense of guilt and shame. Mm a daily dose of other people's tragedies, other people's problems, all of the stuff that society today doesn't want to pay attention to and yet wants to send a cop to take care of. Mm -hmm. That cop often walks away from the the duty shift, feeling this vague and and non-specific sense of guilt and shame. Now that becomes exacerbated when your own character is not in order. When your own sense of match between values and behaviors isn't there, those who do work on character and work on that find great resilience. So character is one. Another one is connection. And connection is really this idea that as social beings, we have to deeply connect with other people because it in connecting to other people that we make meaning out of what seems like meaningless stupid horrible experiences and deep connections so lots of lots of cops firefighters and medics have deep connections with in the brotherhood and sisterhood but also working on those connections outside because it is in connecting with non first responders that we find context for the things that we see witness and participate in so connections
0: i uh i see oh no i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i I just uh you know that whole thing about character character is kind of built into the struggle especially when you're working in these kinds of fields and it's uh you know we don't build character when everything is good you build character when it's when it's a challenge and not allowing yourself the guilt and shame of other people to, be, to impregnate your sense of that moral center that you've got to be able to establish and cultivate within yourself. And that takes making those choices in those moments and digging deep inside and saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is uh, what I stand for. And really trying to stay in alignment with that in everything that you do, in all your relationships, in all of whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's your personal relations, and it's that 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 inner that inner voice that aligns you with that integrity inside that helps you to stay focused in those very troubling tragedies that that uh, they bear witness to. Uh, I just also- want to do real quick announcement. Uh, we are broadcasting here on uh, www kuhsdenver.com that's kuhsdenver.com we are broadcasting here live in colorado and providing the best music and best shows not only here in colorado but all around the nation and all around the world i just want to make a quick thank you for all of you who are tuning in from around the world we are reaching every continent on this planet it's really an honor to be and a privilege to be broadcasting to all of you. Uh, thank you. It's because of you. You make this show possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, I'm sorry, John. I just needed to do that quick announcement real quick. Uh, go ahead. What were you saying?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I'm just so glad you're having this conversation about first responders. We are talking about sort of the counterbalance to what it takes, and and. We, we I had mentioned character and I'd mentioned connection a third one is that we really are identifying in in people who do this work really well is a commitment to growth and development
0: mm.
1: and what what we are saying about that and and it's really interesting because the the Greek Stoics knew this uh, you find it in in uh, in the in the the uh, the literature around um, chivalry in the Middle Ages, you find it in the literature of the samurais. They knew that if you were gonna do this difficult work on one hand, you had to have a counterbalance. And so this commitment to growth and development is to say, you if you're gonna do this work, you have to continue to ask yourselves, what am I learning about life, about society, what I'm learning about myself? and one of the things we notice is that what what um, some researchers have described as post-traumatic growth is actually much more common than breakdown Mm -hmm. and with just a little bit of feeding with just a little bit of, of of coaching and help people can turn very difficult experiences into deep insights about life and so that comes from this commitment to growth and development. Uh, that is that is so essential. And the last thing that we're seeing in terms of this super adult maturity is mm. is really about um, the pursuit of calm. Now that mm. may sound odd. We're we're less interested in the pursuit of happiness or joy or anything like that. But one of the key things about re- If you're a cop, firefighter, or a medic, one of the challenges is that in your work setting, even if you work for a slow service that doesn't go on very many calls or have very many responses, you still always at work have to be in a state of hypervigilance Mm. because the next second uh, could be toning you out on the worst call of your career. And you have to be prepared for that. That's what makes first responders so great and such important assets so the counterbalance is is this pursuit of calm but here's the problem many first responders have learned to carry stress so well that they don't really recognize stress in their lives until it's super super high so One of the things that is important in this counterbalance is helping first responders understand the impact of stress in their lives and to be able to rediscover how to identify low levels of stress so that they begin to be in touch with that and then be able to tell the difference between when they're stressed or calm.
0: Well, how do we do that? I mean, that's because if you're under so many, I mean, you're always on that hypervigilant state. You're, you're having to be on alert all the time. What are the, some of the things that uh, you have people do to be helped to reduce that, so that they can stay in that place of calm, uh, so that they can be aware of the stressors that are, you know, heightening them up to a place where they might uh, they might not be at their best. What are some of the things that you find? Uh, helps people who are in these services to achieve that
1: well one of the things we do is we talk about calm tranquility and peace Mm -hmm. we talk about as a feeling as a as a um, as a aspiration so what we know for sure is that because we often operate in a high level of stress what we do often with that those high levels of stress is try to dull out. And dulling versus calm is really um, there's a big difference between the two. And getting people to begin to talk about that and understand that. Another thing that we do is start having them ask the people that they live with and who who they are around, family members, and so on mm-hmm. to. Mirror back to them when they perceive that they are both stressed and calmed. What we find is long-term career workers in 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 um, first responder work often rarely experience a deep state of calm, peace, and tranquility, and they they rarely have that experience. So, what we sent them off, set them off to do is set them off to do uh, some experiments with paying attention to when they really feel calm. First, give them sort of a definition of it and then get to recognize that. Mm -hmm. Another experiment that we're doing to help people do that, and this is about the transition between work and home, is to get people, and this is um, not my work, but uh, uh, widely being um, researched throughout the psychological community, and that's the power of gratitude. That's having, um, having first responders from the time they get off duty before they get home to pause somewhere, whether it's on the drive or before they get in the car or before they get out of the car when they get home, and to take out a little notebook and write down three things that they're grateful for. <laughs> Just doing that yeah. often brings them a sense of where they've been all day, and reorients the on-duty thinking to the off-duty thinking and brings uh, a a glimmer, just just a crack in the door maybe of getting to some calm.
0: Well, I find that is so effective. You know, it's, uh, when, you're, when you're tapping into gratitude and you're moving into that space of just really appreciating the life that you have, this is something that I find uh, is very effective in the work that I do with the people that I work with. Is I ask them to do something very similar. That's one of the first things that I ask them to do when they start. When I start working with them, is to have a little journal, a gratitude journal that you write in for for 30 days, and just try it out for 30 days and see how it is. And you write five things that you're grateful for, and that can be anything. I'm grateful for the, my car. I'm grateful for my job. I'm grateful for my shirt. I'm grateful for my uh, family. I'm grateful for uh, you know the the shoes that I have on the bottoms of my feet. And then we also, I also ask them to do, you know, three things that you're grateful for not. And I, try, I think that helps them to kind of balance and see, you know, things could be a lot worse than what they are. I'm grateful for not being in a war zone. I'm grateful for not having a terminal illness. I'm grateful for not, uh, you know, being having my entire town raised to the ground and having people pursue me. These things, once you start tapping into that, it, it really helps to ground you and to say, wow, Life is so precious and beautiful, and I'm so thankful for having the life that I have and doing the work that I do, and it just tends to soften some of those things that you experience and bring you back into yourself. I think it's brilliant, John. Um, We're closing down. We only got about uh, 10 minutes left, John. What what is it that you find is possible? How is it possible um, for these people that run into danger when everybody runs away from danger, How is it possible for the law enforcement, fire, the EMS, how is it possible for them to have a career and live well? What is it that you do in your work that helps them to really grasp that and and take it inside and and hold on to it? Well, normally... What
1: would happen in tribal society is that there would be a deep and rich and vibrant relationship between the first responders and the rest of the community. I have to tell you honestly, I don't have any faith in that right now. Mm -hmm. I don't have any faith that society is going to wake up and move away from their two-dimensional views of first responders and start really trying to rebuild a relationship. What, the way we're working on this is trying to help first responders help themselves and create cultures within inside their departments and alongside of their departments, either through internally creating cultures that support living well or creating para-organizations alongside that that do that. Uh, this is really being trying to orient a, a big concept in, in first responder work today is, is, is peer support and helping peer support not just be there for the people who are in trouble but to reorient peer support toward really teaching sort of this super adult maturity and working on on that and then really reintroducing the idea of eldership into first responder mm-hmm. organization that is those who've been there a long time who have the adult maturity mm-hmm. who have lived lived through it can can help and do it and the final thing that we're trying to do is help first responders first responder organizations think about whether or not they are actually hiring the right people and providing the right onboarding that then helps create this sort of 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 counterbalance or resilience uh, uh, sustainability, uh, long-term growth in in the people that are there. So that's sort of how the the the
0: work is progressing. That's amazing. Uh, we need to have you out here in Colorado. I know that for sure, John. I, <laughs> we've got to get your work out here and um, and to, and to bring this wisdom to the police force and to the fire firemen and or the firefighters and the uh, the emergency medical technicians out here as well um now what ways does making what are the hazards that some of the uh the first responders why does that why does society make first responders life more difficult
1: well we we do that because we are not wanting to pay attention one of the Beautiful things. I know you're familiar with the work of Joseph Campbell and and uh, the mythology work, and he talks about the hero. And when you read that through sort of uh, a lens of the first responder, he says, really, if you were to, you, to we were to kind of. Modify his words. It would be the first responder is really the one who has the important information for society, not society the other way around. And it's because the first responder really sees things as they really are. Talk to a cop in an inner city; he can tell you what's really going on in society, and and what, why we are driving a a gulf and a gap between society and first responders is really because in many ways society doesn't want to deal with the social ills that are um, afoot all throughout society today. Disparities in wealth, the opioid uh, um, crisis. the racial issues that are out there. All of these things are real, and we, we as a society don't want to deal with them, and yet we want our first responders to somehow keep us safe from the things that we don't want to deal with. That's, that's making the Gulf huge.
0: Oh, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things when people work in these warrior-type professions, whether it's in the military, whether it's first responders, uh, you do. You see the worst of the worst in people. You see the ills. You see the you know the 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 contradictions, the paradoxes of life, and uh, it makes it very difficult to be able to truly fit in in ways. And if a society is not willing to be open and available to hearing about the true social ills that are out there, you feel isolated and alienated. You can't talk to anybody. You don't know people. Don't get it. And you you, you know they're living in these bubbles. <laughs> they live in these bubbles of life. And sometimes maybe that's the way it's supposed to be, but I also think there has to be people in the community, in society that has to be able to reach out and say, listen, we need to be open and available and hear what you have to say so that you have a place to discharge your stuff as well in a safe container and in a safe environment. Um, you've been working with the first responders, John, for a long time, uh, like 40 years or something, I think, right? Yeah. Um, what have you learned from them over the years? What about their their work and their their lifestyle and the people? What has impacted you and your understanding of of what their life is like and and the world that they live in day in and day out?
1: Well, you know, I I, I say this often, but I I the vast majority of first responders that I encounter and have worked with over the years are. Uh, the best of humanity. Uh, They they may be rough in their presentation. They may be coarse in their humor, but they are the best of what society has to offer because they have prioritized the well-being of the stranger over themselves. Uh, they are the perfect example of, of what the uh, story of the Good Samaritan was about, where where the stranger takes care of the other, the person who isn't even like them, uh, who society says they should maybe not even touch, and will will put their life at risk for for them. Um, so these people, I think, when we listen to them, and if we we will just pay attention, they have they have depth of soul that we don't see anywhere else. They have this closeness. Uh, the psychologist James James Hillman talked about soul has this affinity to with death. And first responders have this closeness to mortality and to violence and to the and to the ruggedness of life. That the rest of us don't. And in doing so, I think the opportunity, what's exciting is the opportunity for first responders is to not only live deep, rich, full, meaningful lives, but to come toward the end of their life and have a depth of insight uh, that no one else will have. And that's what's exciting to me about this work and why, for me, it, it is it is the best of, of work to be doing.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I can... Can't agree with you more. I think people who are, are in these professions—they are the noblest of the noble. They uh, are willing to sacrifice themselves. Uh, you know, what do I make? This is—I uh, found this quote, and he, I think it epitomizes uh, all who hear that call. All, and it says, "What do I make? I make holding your hand seem like the biggest thing in the world when I'm cutting you out of your car. I can make five minutes seem like a lifetime." When I go into a burning house to save your family. I make those annoying sirens seem like angels when you need to hear them. I can make your children breathe when they stop. I can help you survive a heart attack. I make myself get out of bed at 3 a.m. to risk my life to save people I've never met. Today, I might make the ultimate sacrifice for your life. I make a difference. That's what firefighters, police officers, paramedics, EMTs, and all other first responders, what they make a difference in our lives, they're the ones we call in a crisis, large or small. John, we are just about done for time. I would like you to provide, you know, if you have any kind of information about, you know, how the people, law enforcement, uh, EMTs, uh, firefighters, how they could get in touch with you, and where they can find you, um, and uh, also if you could give one piece of advice, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be?
1: Um, well, the, I'll do the advice per- first. First, uh, okay. <laughs> the advice would be: don't stop growing. Just keep the the the, the more you grow, the deeper, richer, fuller life be, um, becomes. So just Keep growing. People can reach me uh, simply through email. Uh, my email address is jmbecknell at gmail.com and love to hear from anyone out there. Um, so, uh, and I'm sure if you have the uh, email address, you could pass that on.
0: Uh, we'll definitely uh, make sure to get that passed on. And, John, we got a, a retreat coming up in uh, October, right? That's where we're yes, joined. we're.
1: We have a retreat uh, where we're bringing together, um, it's, we believe the first we're bringing to, together uh, veterans, combat veterans and and uh, first responders, law enforcement, fire and EMS. We're doing that on Orcas Island out in, in uh, the San Juans and in, uh, in Washington state. Unfortunately, the retreat is full. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a waiting list, uh, but we'd be happy to hear from anybody uh, that's interested and um, we can provide
0: more information. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a, a first, and uh, it's such an honor. John, it is such an honor. For, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so thrilled and blessed and grateful uh, to just uh, be working with you and uh, to have you on this show. Uh, I know that everybody who's tuned in today has really been blessed by the wisdom uh, that you have brought and shared uh, about our first responders. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you uh folks we are uh just about ready to close um wow what a show what an amazing thing i mean it's it's so such a privilege to be here Uh, we are broadcasting just real quick again on www.kuhsdenver.com it's kuhsdenver.com and we are going to have another brilliant show in two weeks i have got another very special guest coming on dr ron holman Uh, We're going to be making a shift towards the east a little bit and looking at the mysteries of India. Uh, I hope you tune in for that show. Folks, thank you so much uh, for tuning in. Wow. Uh, God bless you all. Uh, I just want to say to every one of you, may you be well. May you be free of pain and suffering. May you be whole. God bless every single one of you. Council is adjourned. God bless. See you in two weeks. and hmm. hey, folks, will be... Oh. Turn on the music. yes our mics off?